You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. First Corinthians chapter 8. This is a chapter in which Paul discusses what we would call Christian liberty. Christian liberty or Christian freedom. So that those who are in Christ, forgiven of their sins, we are free from the, the sin that is in the world. We are also free to receive of the blessings that God has for us in his creation. Now, I want you to remember back just briefly, at at the end of chapter 6, Paul was talking about sexual immorality in the church, and he was addressing that issue, and he read off a big list right about verse 9 through 11 about the types of behaviors that if they are continued and practiced in a person's life, that that person is not going to be able to enter into or inherit the kingdom of God. That if they repetitively, unrepentantly say, I'm going to behave as a, and some of those things are sexually immoral person, an idolater, uh, someone who's greedy, a drunkard, those kinds of things, then if they continue practicing that, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul had to go on and he had to talk about marriage and singleness and widows and how they're supposed to act and and how they're supposed to serve the Lord. And then you'll remember on Sunday that I told you that chapter 9 sort of becomes a transitionary chapter where Paul stops rebuking the church on things that were wrong and starts instructing the church on how they're supposed to be conducting their services and allow the Holy Spirit to work in them. Chapter 8 is the last chapter that Paul is really using to address a question that was asked to him. Because remember the letter that he's writing is in response to questions that were brought to his attention about conflicts in the church. And here in this this chapter, chapter 8, Paul is discussing again what we would call Christian liberty. The, The great theologian John Calvin would call what he's talking about here intermediate issues. And intermediate intermediate issues, if I can say it, meaning things that are neither good nor bad, but are indifferent, right? Which God has allowed us in the freedom that he has given us as followers of Christ to use in moderation according to our conviction and judgment and and to make sure that there is a difference between, and this is Calvin's words that I find so encouraging, the difference between liberty and licentiousness, the difference between being free and having liberty to exercise our freedom, but also keeping ourselves away from falling off the edge back into sinfulness. This is what Paul is addressing in this issue. So let's take a look at verse one through three as we begin. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul is, again, answering questions here that were brought to him uh, by the church because there were conflicts involved here. And the conflict was that there were those in the church who were eating meat, literally, beef or chicken or whatever the case might have been, that had been offered to idols. I'll explain that in just a moment. 
But what, what Paul starts out saying is this, concerning, regarding food offered to idols, which was the nature of the question, Paul says, we know, meaning those in the church, he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. But knowledge, and literally there's parentheses around that word, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So here's the question. What is this knowledge that everyone in the church knows? And what is that knowledge that everyone in the church knows that puffs up, that might make someone arrogant? The knowledge I believe that Paul is talking about is the knowledge of Christians uh, knowing what is unchristian, knowing what is pagan, that those who have been brought into the church know and understand through Jesus Christ and his salvation that there's a difference between the God of Israel, Yahweh God, versus the lowercase gods, as we'll see, that are present in the pagan world. Now here's the thing. This is the knowledge of what we've, there is the knowledge, in other words, of what we've been saved from. That's what Paul says in the church. If you're a part of the church, everybody should have that knowledge that you've been saved from the pagan world. You've been saved from uh, idolatrous gods. And, And Paul contrasts the two reactions to salvation. And this is what can occur. The knowledge that we've been saved, can, can re, people can respond or react in two different ways. A knowledge of Jesus that makes someone react arrogantly, right? I'm saved, you're not, therefore I'm better than you, and there are Christians who act that way. Or there's a knowledge of salvation through Jesus that makes someone react humbly, where we basically say, Lord, thank you for saving me, I will do whatever you ask me to do. And unfortunately, there there are those two separate reactions that can often occur. And And I have to say, sadly, I've run into both. Gladly with the humble case, but I've very sadly run into people who are arrogant about the fact that they know Jesus. I'm not sure how those things even go together. We, we learned that Jesus came as a servant, right? And so Paul's modeling himself after Jesus to serve people, all manner of people. But I don't understand how people can so easily become arrogant and know it all in their faith instead of defaulting to the example of Jesus, which is love and humility and service. And so here's, here's what Paul says in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Here's what he's saying. If someone's being arrogant and acting like they're a know-it-all about the faith, they're a know-it-all about the Bible, and they have this arrogant attitude, the truth is, at the heart and the core of who they are, they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. They really are confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They don't really know what they're talking about. And so Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And the indication there is if you've received the love of God and you're responding to that, you're loving God by obeying his commandments, that's an evidence that you truly are saved, that you truly do know the Lord. So let's take a look at verse 4. Therefore, because of that knowledge that, that we've learned there, that love is, is what we're looking for, that humility and that love, rather than the arrogant knowledge. Verse 4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one, 
For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now that Paul has laid out the principle of knowledge versus love, he begins addressing the, the relevant topic, and it is regarding idolatry. And this is the kind of knowledge that Paul says we want to have and be confident in, that there are no other gods but Yahweh God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of creation, the, the, the only true deity God. And, and he says, well, there are many lowercase gods, right, for although in verse 5, there, are, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth. When he says heaven there, he doesn't mean celestial heaven. He doesn't mean the, the, the realm of God's kingdom. He means the sky, the, the, the heavens and the earth, meaning all of creation. Although there are many so-called lowercase gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed are, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Paul says. And so he wants to establish this and acknowledge, hey, there are people who worship the earth. They worship natural things, made up things, right? But he wants to instill this confidence in the Corinthians. There's only one God. There is no competition between God and any of the other pagan idols, that there's no truth to what those things represent or who they are. And the truth is, in terms of relating this to our life today, we, you know, we've said it often, you've heard it often. The truth is, is we still have idols. We still make little lowercase g gods in our life today. All the common fleshly things. We make gods out of possessions. We make God, gods out of money. We make gods out of relationships. And all that means is that we are taking that thing, whatever it is, our house, our car, our job, our relationship, whatever it is, and we are glorifying it or paying more attention to it than we are of God who has created all of those things. That's the essence of idolatry, is taking something created, something that's of this world, the substance of this world, and placing it above Yahweh God, God who created all things. That's idolatry, and we still do that. Right? With our hearts, with our minds, with our eyes, we're so easily drawn to worldly things, temporal things, things that the Bible says are passing away and in the end are going to be burned up. They're not going to be something that goes into eternity. And so it's a good reminder for us that as Paul says this, hey, there's only one God. We remind ourselves of that and, and say, listen, am I putting anything above my devotion to the Lord? Am I putting anything above my obedience to the Lord? Am I actually pursuing and seeking out what God has called me to, what he's gifted me in? How am I addressing the issue of sharing the gospel with people? Where am I doing that? What is my role in that? And, and far too often we get sidetracked and we get waylaid by the temptations of the world. It's very, very easy to just like the feeling of pleasure or like the feeling of accomplishment, or confidence, or whatever the case might be. Those things become idols for us. 
And one of the things we need to understand, I learned this years ago, probably probably 10 years ago, I learned this truth, and, and it's been life-changing to me. And it's this, that we will never be more satisfied in our life than when God is most glorified in our life. See, the reason that people create idols out of houses and cars and vacation homes and money is because that stuff feels good really quickly. It's very simple to get a, to get a, a thrill off of buying something new. I'm guilty of that. Man, Man, when, when you have one of those days where you're just like, I don't know, I just kind of feel down or whatever. Let me go buy something. So for some reason, it releases some sort of endorphin in your head that you go, hey, something new and shiny. That's great. And it may be as simple as like, go over to the store and get a Diet Pepsi or something, right? Like that's my drink of choice. And, and maybe it's just that. Go, go get that and all of a sudden it lifts my mood. But here's the thing. Here's the truth of this. That that is going to last for a very short period of time. Even in the grand scope of eternity, our relationships and, and our spouses and the people that we love, that's such a limited part of our existence to say that, that we're putting all of our hope and energy into being pleased by that relationship above the Lord is false. It's limited. But when God is most glorified in our life, when he's the most important thing, when he's the thing that is above everything else, when he's the thing we think about when we wake up, he's the thing, the thing we think about before we go to sleep, when we dedicate our life to going, I get it. I got a family. I got a job. I got kids. I got recreation. I got all the other things I'm doing. But when we sort of just go, I'm going to take all that stuff and sort of lay it underneath the umbrella of I just want to please the Lord with everything I want to do. We actually will have more lasting pleasure and enjoyment when God is most glorified in our life. If you want to flesh this out and if you want to read more about this, um, there, there's a pastor named John Piper who was at, at a church in Minnesota for years and he's got a powerful ministry. It's called Desiring God and his book, Desiring God, goes through this idea of being satisfied with God more than anything else in the world. He calls it Christian hedonism, the idea of finding pleasure, Christian hedonism. And so the book is Desiring God by John Piper. Highly recommend it. Now, here, here's the issue, the history of this and the issue of what was taking place. Meat and the, and the meat that was available to eat in Corinth as in other cities. The way that it got there and, and what was available for most people was this, meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Realize that these pagan uh, temples all were uh, correlating to some god of some kind, and it had priests and acolytes, people who were following after that pagan god, and they would sacrifice meat to those gods. Just like the Israelites sacrificed meat to the Lord for the different offerings, whether it was a bull, a ram, a dove, whatever it was. In the same way, they were sacrificing to these pagan gods. Now, the meat offered on pagan altars was typically divided into three portions. This is just a little bit of the history so that you understand why Paul's addressing this. One portion, one-third, was burnt as an offering to that pagan god. One-third was given to the worshiper, the, the person who came to bring the offering. A third of it was given to them to take home and eat. And then a third of that sacrifice to that god was given to the priest that they might have food to eat. That, that was their job, was to serve in, the, in whatever temple it was. And so they were given a part of that meat to be able to take home and eat. Now, if the priest had enough food or didn't want his portion of the meat, what he would do is he would then sell it at the temple restaurant. 
There was literally a place that you could take your food and have them cook it up for you, and you could eat it there. It was like, a, it was like an open-air market kind of a thing where you could buy the meat there at a discounted price because it had come from a sacrifice, and you could either eat it right there or you could take it home to eat it. And that was sort of just how it worked. Now, temple meat was generally less expensive than going directly to the farmer or the rancher who had the meat, right? So people looking for a good deal, people who didn't have a whole lot of money, they went to the temple and bought that meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Now, this was the issue for the Corinthian Christians. The question of their conscience was, can we take this meat that the purpose was to worship a false deity, a false god, an idol, can we in good conscience take that meat and bring it home and eat it, right? What if we're served, or, or, or what if we're at someone's house and we're served meat to eat that we know was sacrificed to an idol? What are we supposed to do? Can a Christian eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? The whole idea is there, can a Christian uh, uh, touch the world? How does a Christian keep themselves unstained and clean from the things of the world when we're eating meat that was sacrificed to a pagan deity, to a pagan god? Now, let me lay this out again. Remember that Paul is addressing the church and, and calling them not to be divided and broken apart, but to be unified, to be in agreement together, to be of one mind. And remember that there were people who said, hey, we're going to follow Peter. The people in the church who said, we're going to follow Peter, they were considered Jewish rigorists. And the idea being they were Judaizers, that even though they believed upon Jesus for salvation, they were the ones who said, Jesus saved us on the cross, but we need to maintain our Jewish traditions. We need to eat kosher. We need to maintain the sacrifices. We need to worship at the temple, right? Like there were, there were those who were within the church who were trying to very legalistically structure the church to say, Jesus, we get it, but there's some rules we also have to follow. And they were not understanding the fullness of God's grace, that once Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that we're free, that he has fulfilled all of the law, that Jesus completes every requirement of righteousness in the law of God, so that those who believe upon him for salvation, sins are washed clean, and we are now free. That's what Paul, that's what we talked about on Sunday. Paul says, though I'm free from all, I'm free from any religious requirements on my behavior, but I'm going to be a servant to all manner of people, is what he said. So this is the issue that Paul is addressing, is uh, 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 people with conscience issues on this meat sacrifice to idols and the Judaizers, those in the, in the Christian faith who still think that we're supposed to hold on to Jewish traditions, they're telling us we're not supposed to eat this meat. We're poor. We just need meat. There are no real other gods but one true God. So what does it matter if we eat that meat? That's what Paul is having to discern and, and create this conflict uh, or, or, or sort of resolve this conflict. Now, part of the reason that this conflict existed was that in Acts chapter 15, take note of that, you can go back and read it later, Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, one of the things that the Council of Jerusalem said, James stood up and spoke, as they were sending out instructions to new believers, right? They said, keep yourself from meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat anything that's been strangled. Don't eat anything that's been sacrificed to idols. Keep yourself from sexual immorality. These were things that they were telling new believers. They were saying, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. But 
For your conscience and the people that you're ministering to don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. So, of course, there were probably some people here at Corinth that were going, well, listen, James and all the guys at Jerusalem told us not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So, Paul, how are we supposed to respond to this? Like, what are we supposed to do here? So this is, this is where Paul is explaining it, and, and he's laying out for them the fact that those idols that the meat was sacrificed to, they're not real. They're not real. They're a figment of a person's imagination. It, they're, they're not anybody to be concerned about because there's only one real God. Now, this begins to be very relevant for us today when we take this truth and bring it up to our present day. I have friends who very often, I'm not on Facebook, Carly's on Facebook, but we, we've had this experience where friends will send out messages on Facebook. Or perhaps you know people who in the conviction that they have, they'll say, hey, you shouldn't buy products from this company because their corporate entity supports ungodly things. I've got friends who are like, don't go to Disneyland because Disney Corporation supports things that are, that, are, that are forbidden in scripture, right? And the funny thing about that is that those, those people start, sort of become just like these people who were saying, hey, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. We have to maintain kosher uh, food practices, right? Legalism saying it's not enough just to be saved and experience the grace of God, but we also have to perform certain things to stay in the grace of God, right? So that's where we, in our day and age, have to look at it and go, okay, Paul says those idols, they're not real. There's no substance to them. There's only one God. So the, the activities that are surrounding those idols they're really left to the conscience of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, to say, am I good with this? Am I okay with it? Does it fit in with my conviction of who I am in Christ? And so Paul here says that those who consider the meat that was sacrificed to idols as unclean or tainted, he says spiritually, let's look at verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, meaning that there's only one God. Some actually believe that there are other lowercase g gods. He says here in verse 7, but some, through former association with idols, meaning in their previous life before Christ, they might have worshipped those idols that that food was sacrificed for. He says they eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, mark this, underline this, take note of this, their conscience being weak, is defiled. Paul makes a statement here that is important for us to process well and process correctly. In younger, more immature years of, of my faith, I would look at that and I would fall into the arrogance of saying, yeah, we're free. We're free from all things. And so those of you who are restricting your behavior or saying, I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to drink this and I'm not going to eat this and I'm not going to listen to that movie and I'm not going to watch that TV, you could very easily become arrogant and go, you're so weak in your faith. You don't understand. We're free and miss the point entirely, right? Paul here says that those who consider the meat that was sacrificed to idols as unclean or tainted because of their previous experience in the world, having worshipped those same idols. And they receive this conviction of, I can't associate with that thing anymore because I've been saved from that. Paul says they're actually 
weak in their faith. See, often within the church, we build this culture that says a person who abstains or limits themselves in some way, we sort of sort of look at them as the strong one. Boy, they're really got a you know they really got a strong will that they're that they're not going to go partake of things that 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 are like John Calvin said, sort of neutral. Not that there's a gray area, but that they in and of themselves are not either good or bad, but God leaves to us to be able to determine, can I participate in this? What are some of those things? Well, in our modern day and age, it's like what I said. There are people who are divided on the issue of drinking alcohol and saying, you can drink alcohol in moderation without being sinful. There's others who say, you can't touch it. It's all bad, right? The truth is, is that in and of itself, it's neutral. It's neither good nor bad. How you use it, how you partake of it, is what determines whether it's good or bad. That's a major one for people in the church. Movies, television, music, in and of itself, it's just a thing. Even music that has some sort of message in it, right? It's just a thing. How you partake of it and how you use it, listen to it, respond to it, react to it, that's what determines whether it's good or bad. Now, I'll get into a subtopic there in just a minute. But Paul says, because we have knowledge that those pagan idols are not real, then there's no big deal in actually eating that meat. That's Paul's conclusion. It's not a big deal to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And the one who's, who's having an issue with it, they're actually weak in their faith. Now, here's the thing. Why are they weak in their faith by not eating that? Paul said they, they, were, they had previously worshipped those idols and they had had experience with that stuff, so they were just convicted to stay away from it, right? Why is that considered weak? Because, and here, here, here's why, because they're not putting first in their heart the knowledge in their heart and mind that there is only one God that we serve. Now that they've been saved, now that they know who Jesus is, they should have the knowledge that there's only one God, that those other gods aren't real, that they don't actually exist, that they don't affect who we are in Christ. They're nothing. They're just neutral. So what is it about this person here, here as Paul says, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Is it because their conscience is faulty? That they're, that they're not actually hearing the Holy Spirit and that they're not under correct conviction? The truth is, is that their conscience is actually overworking. They're, they're overthinking the issue. Their, conference, their conscience is working too much. It's working overtime without the knowledge that there is only one man. And this again can happen to Christians today. These Christians of weak conscience we're basically looking for every boogeyman, <laughs> every lowercase God, and, and was actually ascribing some kind of value to them and becoming fearful of, of them. Now, in that culture, they were a far more spiritual culture than we are. They believed and experienced in, in greater measure than we do today um, the demonic side of life, demonic powers. Okay, And I'll address that in just a second. But, but they very much believed that if that meat had been sacrificed to an idol, that that was demonic, and that if they partook of that meat, that a demon would somehow enter them. That was part of the challenge that they had. 
That's why Paul's saying there's only one God. The, the idols that that meat was sacrificed to, they're not real. You can't get a demon by eating that meat. That's the subtext of what Paul is saying here. Now, the question can be asked, but aren't there demonic forces at work in anti-Christian pagan uh, idols and false gods? Isn't that a part of Satan's attempt to, to uh, persuade and, and, and fool people, right? To deceive them? And the answer, the reality is yes. Yes, there is in anything that is opposite of the Lord, anything that is against God's truth and what he has given us and revealed to us in scripture, at its root is Satan. But I want you to remember, this is Paul, as Paul lays this out, it's an issue of weak conscience that gets tripped up by these types of things rather than resting in and living in the confidence of knowing the true and living God as taught to us in the word. I want you to mark these scriptures down that are confidence builders for us to understand that yes, we live in a spiritual world. Yes, there are demonic forces at work trying to deceive people and pull them away from God's kingdom. But I want you to take note of these scriptures. James chapter four, verses seven and eight. James chapter four, verse seven and eight says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The devil may be a roaring lion, but he is not a devouring lion. The devil may make a lot of noise and he may put a lot of temptation in front of us and he may have very real influence into the things of the world that are sinful. But the Christian is told this, simply resist him. Just push back. <laughs> just, just tell him no. And the truth is because the power of God in you being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Satan can't compete with that. And he will flee. When you resist the devil, that moment of temptation to sin, it's that moment of just saying, no, I'm in Christ. I'm clean. I don't have to do that. I'm free now. I'm no longer bound by slavery to sin. Resist the devil. Give it a moment. Take a breath. He'll flee. That temptation will be removed. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, mark this as well. In regard to the spiritual element in the world, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul would say in that letter, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The issue of sin in our life, it is not rooted in the flesh. It seems like it is. Because that's what we're fighting. Lust, greed, anger. Those are, those are fleshly emotions. It, our sin is not actually rooted in the flesh, though. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. And what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10 there is that we destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Satan makes good arguments. Satan makes good arguments. Hey, pleasure feels good. There's pleasure in sin, Hebrews says, for a season. But, but, but what Paul is saying is that, listen, we destroy those arguments, we destroy those temptations of Satan, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The battle begins in the mind. What are you thinking about? What are you meditating on? What are you filling your mind with? What knowledge are you holding on to? The third scripture in regard to the spiritual life 
and why it's so important for us to understand that when we have the spirit of the living God in us, the darkness of demonic false gods and idols have no power over us. What Paul is trying to teach about these who have weak conscience. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, John says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a, that's a truth that we can rest in. That's a truth that we can latch onto and just go remember in the face of temptation, in the face of sin, in the face of tragedy, in the face of, of just bad circumstances, whatever that might be. As a child of God who has overcome sin, greater is the one living in us than the one who's living in the world. I want you to take note parenthetically though that, that John says this in verse 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. When we talk about end times, eschatology, last things in the world, a large part of that prophetically is in being able to understand the presence of the Antichrist. And the reason that that, that topic and that subject and, and trying to look for the fulfillment of those prophecies takes so much uh, attention from people is they're thinking about it in the sense of there's one person coming at one time that is going to be the one who is the Antichrist. John would say the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world from that time forth. Now, will there be, like the, the prophecy suggests, a, a leader who will rise up and uh, 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 create an agreement, uh, an accord with Israel, a false accord that he's going uh, to uh, reject, uh, all that stuff? Yeah. All that stuff is true, absolutely. But what John warns is that, listen, that spirit of the Antichrist, it's not just some one future person that we're looking at. It's in the world now. And we have to understand that we're going to encounter it every single day, things that are against Christ. But remember, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Now, Paul goes on and clarifies here in verse 8. Speaking again about the, about the weak conscience person. Verse 8 says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. What we do or don't eat doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't bring us any closer to God or take us further away from God. There are those who believe that being um, a vegetarian or vegan is better for us. It's more spiritual because we're not killing animals uh, we're, we're taking care of our bodies, it's healthier, all of that kind of stuff. And there are entire uh, uh, denominations and, and sections of the Christian church who believe that we're supposed to be vegetarians, right? Well, the truth is, is that God says, eat the fat. <laughs> he says, drink the sweet and eat the fat. God has given us this world to have dominion over and to enjoy and partake of the things that he's created all to his glory. And what Paul says here is that the person who does eat or doesn't eat, it, either way, it doesn't bring us closer to God. And, and, and we're not better or worse regardless of whether we do or don't partake. Even meat that was sacrificed to idols, right? And again, this becomes the manner in which we need to have grace for one another in the behaviors and practices of those in the church. 
One commentator says this, this is the very point where most stumble in issues relevant to Christian liberty or freedom. Things like movies, drinking, music, television, those kinds of things. Sometimes people assume that one stance or another is evidence of a greater or lesser spirituality. And this is where Paul begins to talk about and juxtapose knowledge that puffs up and Christ-like love and how it relates to this issue of liberty or freedom that we have as new creations in Christ. Take a look at verse 9 real quick. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is a warning for the people who are exercising their liberty or freedom, those who have a strong conscience, those who understand that there is one God, and that because there is one God, all of those false idols, they're hogwash, they're not real, they don't really affect us. We can partake of meat that's been sacrificed to those idols and be clear in our conscience. Paul's addressing those people now saying, be cautious about that liberty. Don't be arrogant with that liberty. He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In verse 10, he goes on and says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Remember, the one with the weak idol, weak, weak conscience. They had previously worshipped those idols that the meat was being sacrificed to. There was a temptation for them to go back into their old lifestyle. Here's the best analogy I know. It's the simplest one. You as a Christian may have liberty to drink alcohol. Jesus created wine at the wedding of Cana. It wasn't just grape juice. It was wine. There are some Bible teachers who want to tell you, no, it was actually just grape juice. and It was watered down. No, the master of the feast said, you brought out the good stuff. Okay. Jesus said that, that, you know, he partook of wine. Paul told Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach. Use it medicinally, right? The instruction in scripture is not to be drunk, not to allow anything to master you or to, to allow it to become an addiction. But here's the thing. In our Christian liberty, if we could sit down and have a glass of wine or, or beer or whatever the case might be, we're not going to take that in our liberty and set it in front of an alcoholic and go, yeah, I'm just having a drink here, buddy. Why? Because for the person who is addicted, who has a previous experience of being sinful in those things, it's the temptation to enter back into that sin. And those of us with, with liberty, with freedom, who know how to treat that thing responsibly with a good conscience, are supposed to be cautious about it and say, don't put it in front of someone who might be stumbled or tripped up by it. Yes, we have freedom, but we also have a responsibility here. This reminds me of all the way back in Genesis when Cain murdered Abel because he was angry that, that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. And, and God tells Cain, listen, if you do well, you'll be approved, but there's always that sin lying at your door trying to tempt you away from what is good. Cain kill, rises up and kills Abel. God approaches and, and asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain answers back and says, Am I my brother's keeper? He says, what? Am I supposed to be watching out for my brother? Am I supposed to keep tabs on my brother? And what Paul's telling us in our liberty and freedom as Christians, forgiven of our sin, is that yes, I am responsible for my brother or my sister in Christ. I am supposed to be watching out for the family of God. I'm supposed to consider my behavior and who I'm around and who I might be influencing and how that might be affecting them in their pursuit of 
Jesus. And so we are called to love in such a manner as to be willing to forego our freedom and liberty and the joy of exercising that freedom for the sake of building up and helping a brother or sister in the faith grow in their maturity and to strengthen their conscience. And and here's what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If I don't watch out for my brothers and sisters in Christ, if I don't pay attention and know them well enough to know what is a stumbling block for them, if I don't understand how my freedom affects them, and I happen to cause them to stumble, it's not just them I'm sinning against. I'm actually sinning against Christ, is what Paul says. Now, for some of us who have a more contrary nature, we might say something like, well, only God can judge me. I answer to God and God alone. And that's very, very true. But what Paul tells us is a sobering thought here, that we will answer to God and God alone for how we have treated those who are in the faith. We're to care for one another as the church. And so we need to be cautious about stumbling someone in their faith. Now, bear with me just a second, because we also have to look at the flip side of this. There are those who would take this and try and entrap Christians into some type of religious dogmatism or some sort of religious legalism. This is what happened to Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes about this. Peter in Galatians chapter 2, he began to teach something that was incorrect. There was a situation where he was being intimidated and influenced by, again, Judaizers, those who said you need to keep the Jewish customs even as a follower of Christ. And and by his association with those legalists, Paul, uh, Paul had to get into Peter's face and correct him and say, you can't teach that. That's not true, right? And Paul rebuked Peter because of this. Now, those Jewish legalists who said you have to follow these laws, they might have used the argument that would say, hey, listen, you Christians who have all this freedom, your lack of obedience to our customs, our traditions, stumbles us. We're stumbled brothers. You have to do what we want you to do so that we feel confident in our faith. So if you don't, sacrifice still at the temple. And if you don't follow the ordinances of the the high holy days and all those kinds of things, we're stumbled in our faith. Trying to entrap people to say there's something more to our faith than just believing upon Jesus Christ. It's this argument against legalism, right? And so the truth is, is is that Paul would say that out of love, he'll never act in a way that would put a temptation in front of his brothers or sisters. But he does not care about offending legalism. He, he's great with blowing legalism out of the water. Now, let's finish out what Paul says here. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, I'm willing to sacrifice something that I may really enjoy, that I might really like, a good T-bone steak. Man, <clears throat> if for some reason the guy sitting across the table from me that offends his conscience truly, his weakness in the faith, or weakness of understanding the freedom that we have in Christ, if that really stumbles him, Paul says, I'll never eat meat again. Why? Remember chapter 9, what we talked about on Sunday. 
Paul says, I have determined, I've purposed to be a servant to all. Why? Because service is always about salvation. We serve people because we want them to hear the truth of the gospel. We serve people because we want to win them to the faith. God does that work. We're the vessels he uses. So, as we understand this, there's a reason for being modest. There's a reason for moderation. There's a reason for caution in the freedom that we have as Jesus followers so that we're able to read the room, to really know people that we're in fellowship with so that we protect against putting things in front of them that stumble them. This is one other, this is one more justification of saying that we in the church need to be more transparent with one another. We need to break down walls of, of keeping up appearances. Just be honest with each other. Know each other. And, and go, here's what I'm struggling with. This is real for me. So that we might pray for one another. So that when we're in fellowship with one, with one another, we know what to be cautious about. What not to lay in front of someone so that it's a temptation for them. The church needs to know each other very, very well. And that's why, again, I, I look at what's happening with COVID-19 and sort of having to rethink what church is like and how we meet. And I'm thankful for it in a lot of ways in the fact that the size has, has reduced, has shrunk in a, lot of time, in a lot of ways so that we really take time in getting to know one another and to encourage us in those things. And so there's chapter 8.